The verses that we're going to be going over today are Romans 3, 1 through 8. Let me read that for us. Right and now, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted uh, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true through everyone were though everyone not through, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show, or but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could we judge? How could judge? How could God judge the world? But if through, uh, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory. Why am I being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Alright, so, last week, uh, Paul addressed two of the main excuses that the Jews would call unto in order to have themselves be judged differently. Those two things being the physicality of the law and circumcision. Neither the physicality of the law nor circumcision is able to provide different judgment for the Jewish people. Neither of those things gives an exception to the Jewish people in God's judgment. He will continue to judge with no partiality. Paul showed that the Gentiles, in addition to, uh, to seeing the invisible attributes of God through creation, also have the works of the law written on their hearts. Both groups have received the law, one through physicality and one through general revelation, but the determinate factor in both situations is not the possession of the law or the degree of revelations received, but it's the response to the law and the response to the revelation received. Both groups have had rejection of the law by every member, and both groups are subject to judgment, both Jews and Gentiles. Paul also showed that circumcision, similar to baptism, is a physical act that is supposed to point to towards an inward reality. Just because you are circumcised does not mean you are a perfect lawkeeper. Your circumcision cannot save you. Circumcision is supposed to be is supposed to point to a regenerate heart, a heart that has been made new by Christ. This also applies to Old Testament saints. But uh, we will get to that later down the line in Romans. You know, cry how were Old Testament saints saved? That's a question that Graceful Fire asked a while ago. And the answer is found later in Romans. And we will expound upon that later. But, yeah. Paul is now switching to addressing one of the first responses to these statements. As well, expounding upon some statements he made earlier. That being the unrighteousness of man will point to the righteousness of God. So yeah, let's uh, let's get into these verses. Let's go right back to verse number uno, one. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? 
much in every way to begin with Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. All right. So Paul's statement that there is no favoritism with God in Romans 2.11 um, and his argument regarding the possession of law, uh, of the law in Romans 2.17-24 and his argument regarding circumcision in Romans 2.25-29. Um, this does not uh, negate any advantages that are being had. Um, that there is advantages to having the law and physicality or having circumcision. It is more so that the disobedience which, uh, which squanders those advantages is still not tolerated. These advantages are there to help the faithful Jew, not to protect the faithless Jew. God will still show no partiality in his judgment. Because what's, what's happening here with questions that Paul is bringing up is essentially Jewish people, they're like, where are the people of God? Where is, why don't we get an advantage? We have this stuff, so what? We have nothing? Circumcision means nothing? Well, no, that's that's not the case. Paul, Paul is talking about in the complete rejection of the law and rejection of God of how circumcision or physicality of the law is not enough to save you. So Paul is saying in this next verse of much in every way that there is advantage in being a Jew. There is value in circumcision. Circumcision that points to an inward belief or an inward reality of a circumcised heart, that is valuable. But circumcision that points to a dead heart is worth nothing. There's no point in the physical circumcision if it doesn't point to an inward reality. So it benefits you when you are an obedient lawkeeper of God, but it does not benefit you when you are rejecting God and when you do not have a regenerate heart and you say that God that you're trading in the truth of God for a lie. You're acting in total hypocrisy and condemning others while also doing the very same things yourselves like we've seen in Romans 1 and 2 all the way so far it's um it, there there is no value to it if you're being condemned um but Paul then goes on to talk about uh one big advantage of being a Jew um to begin with the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God so y'all might not know what the oracles of God are. You may be confused as to what this phrase kind of is. This is really just referring to the Old Testament. Uh, the oracles of God is the truth of God breathed out into Scripture. Um, 2 Timothy 2, 3, 16-17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Having the law in physicality is an advantage, but having the law in physicality does not save. It is obedience to the law, not just having it, that is what keeps them holy. The Jews had the light of scripture in a time where the rest of the world was dark with paganism and sin. I would call that an advantage. The Jews were given the task of being library keepers for the word of God. They entrusted... Um, they were entrusted to hold on to the word of God and to preserve it. Scripture is a treasure and a gift unto us that, like we saw in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, is complete, equipped for every good work. God has given us the all-encompassing handbook that he authored, and he entrusted such care 
to his chosen people, the Jews. There, there is, there is advantage in having the law in physicality, but having the law in physicality is not what saves you. It's it harkens back to earlier in Romans two when Paul was talking about how being a hearer of the law as opposed to a doer of the law. Just because you hear the law, or just because you read the law in physicality and nothing changes in you, that that doesn't mean anything. Uh, you can build up knowledge in your heart, not change, and then you're still sinfully, then you're still completely sinful, and you'll still be condemned because nothing really about you has actually changed. You're not actually observing and putting into action what you're reading, but you're just having knowledge is not what's going to save the person. That's and that is not to say that having knowledge about the Bible is a bad thing. Obviously. Uh, I encourage all of you to read the Bible every day because uh, the proper application of knowledge for us uh, brings us closer to God. And the important thing is applying the knowledge of God that we see through the Bible properly to our relationship with him and how we're supposed to act in regards to him and how we're supposed to glorify him and to worship him. But that's all to say that the, the law and physicality is... Uh, Definitely an advantage, but is useless when you don't do anything with it, or when you're faithless to God. Um, Paul is later going to expound upon the advantages that the Jews have in Romans 9.4, uh, but for now, the first example that we're given is that the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. That's, that's their chief advantage that Paul decides to cite here. Alright, let's move on to, to verse 3 and 4. What if some were unfaithful? Does the faithfulness nullify the faithful? Uh, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So, <clears throat> the faithfulness of um, the faithlessness of man does not negate the faithfulness of God. The sinfulness of man does not somehow transfer onto God and to make him sinful. Uh, there's a really good Spurgeon quote for verse 3 in particular. Uh, Spurgeon says, I have to say, or Spurgeon says, quote, I have to say with Paul, what if some did not believe? It is no new thing, for there have always been some who have rejected the revelation of God. What then? You and I better not better go on believing and testing for ourselves and proving the faithfulness of God and living upon Christ our Lord, even though we see another set of doubters and yet another and yet another ad infinitum. The gospel is no failure, as many of us know. For those of you who don't know, ad infinitum means essentially again and again and again in the same way forever. Um, God is true no matter what. Um, no matter what someone tries to contest, uh, God will keep his word. It is a part of his nature. Um, it is something that cannot be changed. The faithlessness of man cannot somehow impact the nature of God, which is unchanging. Um, but uh, so Paul poses these two questions of what if some were unfaithful, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And he immediately answers this question, resounding with, by no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. So, 
what does that really mean? Um, God is true no matter what anyone will contest. God will keep his word. It's a part of his nature. Now, I just used a Spurgeon quote, but there's uh, another good Spurgeon quote uh, for this verse. It says, uh, quote, it is strange, str- it is a strange, strong expression, but it is none too strong. If God says one thing and every man in the world says another, God is true and all men are false. God speaks the truth and cannot lie. God cannot change. His word, like himself, is immutable. That just means unchanging, never changing. Uh, We are to believe God's truth if nobody else believes it. The general consensus of opinion is nothing to a Christian. He believes God's word, and he thinks uh, more of that than the universal opinion of man. So our duty as Christians, when we come across verses like these, it really uh, encourages us and reminds us that our thoughts, our views, and everything, is it's not based on what man will say. Every, every man in the world can say murder is okay, and it's good, and it's something that everyone should partake of. Uh, and then God says, no, murder is wrong, and it's sinful and you will be judged for your murderous actions. Even though everyone else in the world is saying that murder is right and murder is good, and God has a descending opinion, God is the one who is right, because what is right and what is good is based upon his nature. Just because man observes his nature and observes his world and comes to false conclusions and tries to twist things to justify their own views, that doesn't mean that they're right. That doesn't mean that they... uh, cannot somehow uh, go and uh, go above God into say a statement that is more correct than is when they're a dissenting opinion when they're than when they're disagreeing essentially and just because there's a lot of people saying it doesn't make it any more true I mean that's commonly like the bandwagon fallacy just because everyone in the world is saying it doesn't mean that it's true more people, does not make an argument stronger. Um, All right. So, God is true no matter what anyone contests. Um, There is a little Old Testament quotation in here, um, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So, this Old Testament quotation is used from Psalm 51.4, Uh, It is used to illustrate that God is true no matter what. Uh, He keeps his word and covenant perfectly. He can properly judge because he has done no wrong and upheld his nature and character to the most perfect degree. God cannot employ the corrupt judgment of man uh, in the way that we examined the moralist and the Pharisee earlier in Romans because God does not break his own laws and acts in perfect compliance with his own nature and his own word. God's word, like Spurgeon brought up earlier, is immutable. Uh, he is, his word does not change, and his judgment is prevailing because he does not change, and he does not is not corrupted. Uh, Hebrews 6.13 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear by, he swore by himself. God's nature and his word is in making a covenant are the highest form of reliability because they're immutable. They, they do not change. There's nothing higher than his word and higher than his nature. And because there is nothing higher than his word and higher than his nature and his nature is immutable, 
then he can enact proper judgment of the world. He can properly judge things without um, without some sort of corruption uh, or without some sort of sin because God is sinless. He judges properly and he judges accurately. And he knows, like we saw earlier in Romans, that he knows the depths of our heart and that we can't hide secrets from him. Um, but yeah, God's word and his nature are immutable. Let's move on to verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. So uh, Paul is responding to a common counter-argument that an opponent would bring up, or essentially pulling a counter-argument from someone who would be in opposition to what Paul is saying. Uh, if my righteousness uh, brought glory to God, then my unrighteousness was uh, ultimately good. Essentially, uh, the ends justify the means type of situation. Um, and how can God judge me for bringing glory to him? How can, if glory to God is a good thing, and what I was doing eventually did bring glory to God, how can he judge me for that? Um, in theory, the most dramatic example someone uh, could use, or someone who might ask this question, would be Judas. Uh, Judas could, would probably have the best chance at making this case of saying, Lord, I know I betrayed Jesus, but you used it for good. In fact, if I haven't done what I did, Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross at all. Uh, what I did even fulfilled the scriptures. How can you judge me at all? But the answer to Judas would be something like this. Yes, God used your wickedness, but it was still your wickedness. There was no good or pure motive in your heart at all. It is no credit to you that God brought good out of your evil, and you stand guilty before God. The wickedness is still ours, and there's nothing that we can do to change that. And a portion of God's righteousness is shown through how he judges the wickedness. If he does not judge the wicked, then God is not righteous. The judgment of the wicked is necessary to provide the exact glory to God that they would seek as an excuse for the disobedience to his character and to his word. Their very scapegoat requires them to be judged, to give proper glory to God. So you can't really use it as a scapegoat because it involves you still being judged. There, there's no way to get around it and to somehow take your wickedness and put it on to the blame of God is sinful. It's it's um it's self-glorification to say that uh you know my wickedness was good even though I'm going against God because you know eventually it brought goodness to you. Um it's a very uh a very absurdist argument. But um you may be confused at the little aside tossed at the end. Um Paul clarifies that this argument is fully linked in human perspective. Uh, I speak in a human way. Uh, the other versions say different things at that little end. I mean, some of them say, like, I, I, but this is a human argument, is what the NIV says at the end, instead of I speak in a human way. Um, but this little aside is Paul recognizing how absurd the argument is, and he has to clarify that the position of this argument would only come from a sinful human that only seeks uh, to provide glory to the self rather than glory to God. Uh, this sinful mindset would 
call for an immediate correction. And Paul wants to make it clear, explicitly clear, that he does not identify with this argument in any way. This argument is calling God unjust and not perfect by nature. And to do so is sinful, is not giving the immortal God the proper respect that he deserves and trading in the truth of God that he is a perfect and immortal judge um, and trading that in for a lie that God is somehow an unjust judge. It's um, Paul is, is distancing himself from that, uh, that horrendous and absurdist argument by saying, Hey, I mean, I'm bringing this up, but like, this is uh, <laughs> this is like a, a stupid argument pretty much. Um, all right. Verses six through eight. By no means, uh, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? And why do not and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So Paul answers his own question that he sets up in the prior verse. Um he asks, the question that he asked in the prior verse was, um, but if our righteousness serves to show righteousness of God, what shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And the immediate answer to that is, um, by no means, a resounding no. It's, that's essentially just what it is, just no, that's that's dumb. And then he starts to explain it a bit more as to why. Um, but Paul then directly condemns this mindset of let's sin because it will bring glory to God. Um, or others have twisted the words of Paul, uh, namely in the doctrine of justification by faith, to say that we can continue to sin and have no repercussions because we have faith. Um, people will twist the words of Paul to say something he is not. I mean, for how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? It's a oh, it's a deeper level. Um, it's a deeper, uh, essentially like you twist the step of justification by faith to say that we're allowed to keep sinning, and then you go another step and say, well, if I'm allowed to keep sinning and this doesn't matter, then the sin is also bringing glory to God. So why not do that as well? If my sin is ultimately bringing glory to God and it's pleasurable to me at the time, then why not keep on doing it? And Paul is saying, no, you are twisting my words. You are slanderously charging me with saying that when I am not saying that. Um, the twisting of Paul's words and scripture being written by the apostles is something that requires condemnation. Satan twists the words of God, uh, also twists scripture later, but those are pretty much the same thing as we've seen in Second uh, Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Um, but he does that to tempt Adam and Eve, and he does that as well to try to tempt Christ. Um, false teachers do the same thing that... Satan does. They twist the words of Scripture to fit a certain narrative. Um, that is what Paul is condemning. They're, they're twisting the, the words of 
what the Bible says and what the apostles are saying, and the apostles are the one who are writing the Bible, and they're saying that this is uh, what you're saying, and Paul's like, no, you are giving a slanderous charge, and your condemnation is just. You are taking my words so far out of context and twisting them so hard that there is just condemnation that is required for what you are doing. And, I mean, this still fits inside the biblical narrative of what happens to false teachers. Second Peter 2, 1-6 through 6, uh, states, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be uh, false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, you know, that's a destructive heresy of let's keep sinning. That's a pretty destructive heresy. Even denying the master who bought them when you uh, when you just deny God and say let's keep sinning because, you know, it eventually brings glory to him. You're denying the master who, who uh, has given you scripture, um, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensual, sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For God, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly, but if... To, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them as an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So that is definitely a bit of a downer when it comes to uh, when it comes to talking about the judgment of God is is the judgment of the people in the Old Testament. And uh, Paul, or in this case, it's Peter, but uh, I'm sure Paul would agree with Peter that uh, the the condemnation of false teachers. Is it's not asleep, and Peter uh, particularly cites angels and the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's like it's a bunch of uh, judgment that God is casting upon two people, and in that same way, the judgment of people who are false teachers, people who twist the words of Scripture, and people who put slanderous charges to Paul, saying that he's essentially telling people to sin and trying to twist Scripture and trying to, uh, you know, defame Paul and to defame the message of the gospel, their condemnation is not asleep. It's it's not going away, and it's going to be like the condemnation of the people in the Old Testament. Those are examples of what happens to the the ungodly people. And it's, um, yeah, Paul makes it explicitly clear the condemnation of false teachers who twist the words of Scripture is just and is not asleep. Judgment will happen upon those who attempt to corrupt the words of God. So this is a lot of uh, a lot of uh, it's a big downer kind of talking about the judgment of people, and it's same for Romans one and Romans two. We're just talking about judgment and how these people they will have no excuse in their physicality of the law and the circumcision will not help them. Neither will having non physicality of the law because the works of the God the works of the law is written on their hearts and they've observed the invisible attributes of God ever since creation. It's starting to become a real downer, and the, the upturn eventually is that how do we get away from this? How do we properly 
respond to this? Is there anything that we can do? And the answer is no, there's, there's nothing that we can do. But um, there is something that Christ has done for us, and it's Christ has given to us a gift of salvation that where he takes on our unrighteous record, where we are total and complete breakers of the law and breakers and rebellious against the nature of God and his word, essentially spitting in him fit in his face and telling the immortal God that us mortal man know better. And he takes all the sinfulness of us and he dies for it on the cross and he gives unto us his perfect and righteous blood and he makes us new and he makes us clean in him and now we have gone from being total rebellious uh total rebellious totally sinful and blaspheming the name of god and rejecting the name of god trading the truth for a lie to now being in the house of god to now being a child of god because we've been made new and we've been made new in him and now uh, paul uh, which we'll see this later because this this kind of upturn happens later in Romans. So this this it's like a pretty pretty steep climb up to get to this point. But um, when Paul makes the argument for the justification by faith, I mean he's not making the argument for us to keep on sinning because of what Christ has done. His argument is that we need to instead glorify God and to worship Christ and to more reflect Christ every day. And we have the Holy Spirit residing in us, providing for us. Um, Oh, what's it called? Praying for us. Uh, um. Hey, why can't I think of the word? Providing for us a conscience or a condemning conscience um, that makes us realize our sin. That's not the exact word I wanted to use, but that's the only one I could think of that kind of gets the point across. Um, ability. Well, we do the ability to slay sin by the Spirit, but. The Holy Spirit convicts us. It convicts our conscience and makes us uh, desperately aware of the sinfulness of ourselves. Um, and we spend every day trying to reflect Christ more and more. And um, that that's the eventual upturn. And then the glorification of having eternal life with God and being in his joy and in his presence and no longer having to deal with the emptiness of sin. So that's... Um, I don't know. There, there. That's a lot of. There was a lot of judgment talk, and that's the eventual upturn that you want to look at. And the eventual upturn is this whole thing is just a very long, drawn-out gospel of Paul is making so clear the case that man is desperately sinful, and there is nothing that we can do. All of our destruction is not asleep, and we are all breakers of the law, and there is uh, nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we can say. There's nothing that we can change. Uh, we have rebelled against God, and God has given us up to our unrighteous desires. And uh, But then towards the end, there's a but, but Christ came down. He incarnated. He lived a perfect life to impute righteousness onto us, and he's taking on our sinfulness to make us new. He crosses out our old identity and gives us a new one as a child of God. Um, that's kind of that's kind of all I got for uh, Romans three, one through eight. Is there any any questions about what we just went over? I like Romans. I like Romans too, but. Definitely, first couple chapters are a bit of downers, but yeah, I, I do overall love the Book of Romans.
yeah, I, I read your your message above. Uh, I was gonna address it after, but um, I, I'm glad to hear that. I've been praying for you for um, for the past. Uh, man, how long ago did we talk? That was a was that a week ago or is that two weeks ago? I can't remember, but, but I've been praying for you. And that, that is definitely glad to hear. I'd love to talk to you about it um, after. It's been a couple of weeks. Time flies right now. College equals wild. Daily schedule equals wrecked. But um, yeah, if there's if there's no questions about what's um what's going on, then um, I can pray for us, and we can be done. <laughs> um, Larry Boy's typing. Oh, people are typing done. Is it me or is there no BBS tomorrow? BBS Bible study? Oh, well, tomorrow is normally when the topical study would happen. Uh, I'll get to that. Uh, that's uh, that's an after thing. Questions about Romans one or Romans three one through eight in particular. Graceful fires typing. He stopped typing. You know, Graceful Fire, you'd use your mic if you had a question, so I'm just going to pray for us. <laughs> He's just typing random letters. That's fine. All right. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, um, thank you uh, just for us being able to to read your word and to just see your glory, even if it's by the judgment of sinful man, Lord, that we are we're able to to point to you as a righteous judge and point to you to show your glory, Lord. And and we also have to point the finger back to ourselves because we are sinful man, and it's our condemnation that will bring you glory. But we just praise you and thank you for, for having Christ come down and die for our sins and be able to give new life onto us and take our dead hearts and revive them, Lord. Um, I just pray that that is something that we will constantly remind ourselves every day when we're reading the Bible, or we're praying, or we're just glorifying you each day, Lord. That is something I'll never leave our mind, even if we're not Christians or or if uh, if if we're Christians, Lord. It's something that we have to constantly remind ourselves of because our sinful hearts so easily shut out just the glory that you have and the great gift that you've given us, and it's something that we forget about. And something that we should always constantly have on our mind, Lord. Um, I just pray for all of us here that uh, we'll be able to just go throughout our week just constantly remembering that and just reading your word and praying to you and glorifying you and just getting to know you more and know and just developing our relationship with you, Lord. Um, I just pray for all these things in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen.